Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture by the spectator world. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by Amber Athey and Rachel Bovard. And today we're going to be discussing Masters of the Metaverse. Uh, this is a new concept that I think was introduced into most of our vocabularies last week when Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, changed his company's name to Meta, because clearly that was the problem. And he also uh, talked to us on YouTube about this metaverse concept, which appears to be, it's still a bit ill-defined, uh, but it appears to be a retooling of reality itself in which virtual concepts, crypto concepts are going to coexist with the reality around us. Uh, and of course, he's making it out to be all kind of techno-optimism and think of the potential and uh, 3D wall art uh, springing off the wall. But I think that the question exists, you know, Given how many problems social media has caused, given what a revolution in our lives this has been, why are we hurtling so quickly into the next development? Why are we going so quickly to the next revolution? Uh, what is Mark Zuckerberg up to here? Uh, so, Rachel, I, wa- I want to start with you. What was your reaction to this big announcement about the metaverse? Well, I think it's just it's what's so striking about it is that you know mark zuckerberg arguably one of the richest and most powerful people in the world is apparently so unhappy with the life he has that he had to create a virtual <laughs> reality in which to to exist and you know wants to pull us all in with him and i think you know you make a good point that you know these we are still grappling with the changes these companies have wrought to us as individuals to us as a collective society and yet we're hurtling forward into this world where they want us to exist, you know, even further, you know, into their universe, obviously, so they can make money. But, you know, think about how this is going to change, you know, all the things we're still struggling to understand, how we interact with each other, how our self-government operates, you know, how we are fundamentally changing the way in which, you know, we interact. This is, you know, I can't overstate how dangerous I think it is for us to go into this uncritically. Yeah, you make a really good point, Rachel, about how unhappy Mark Zuckerberg must be. Like, I think that's really the key here, right? Like, these people keep trying to fill their lives with technology, and it just leaves them feeling empty. And shouldn't that be a warning sign to people that Mark Zuckerberg feels that he has to go to these lengths to make his life interesting? That should be a warning to the rest of us that we should be really skeptical of giving technology so much control over our lives. And I find it really interesting that One of the key claims from the whistleblower um, just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure we'll get into her motivations and all of that as well, because she's like basically a left wing plant. But (laughs) um, the whistleblower was going on about the addiction to social media, um, particularly among young people and the way it affects young girls with body image issues and the way that children interact with one another and their social development. And yet, again, we are already looking at the next chapter of a massive transformation of how technology plays into our lives. And we haven't even gotten to the place where we know how to protect our children from those changes, let alone ourselves. So it's really a crazy development to see. And I think um, there might be a backlash to this um, at some point from people who are like, wait a second, let's pull back on the reins a bit because we still have so much to think about um, in terms of how this affects our lives. Yeah. And can I just add an element to this that I think is important is that, you know, what Zuckerberg's proposing is not merely, you know, oh, you're working out in the metaverse, you know, you're bowling in the metaverse, you're playing. No, he wants us to 
work in the metaverse and exist in the metaverse. And you saw even companies, I think it was yesterday, the Match Group, which owns Tinder and Hinge and all these dating sites announced that they want a dating metaverse where people meet in a virtual bar you know, and discuss. So this is an it, this is not just about entertainment. This is a fundamental transformation of how we live our lives. And again, to Amber's point, in ways we don't even know how this technology affects our brains, right? We have we have sus, we have suspicions that it's really changing the brains of young people who use it. And now we would just want to hurl ourselves headlong into like putting all the functions of human life through the lens of this metaverse. I mean, we need to pull back and say, like, holy cow, what are we doing? <laughs> Yeah, and I think almost the entire framework of how we think about this is wrong, right? Because have you guys ever been to Epcot Center at Disney World down in Florida before? They've got that giant ball, and inside the giant ball, there's actually a ride, and it's called Spaceship Earth, uh, made possible by a generous grant from AT&T. And it's all about how human communication has improved over the ages, and now we're going into this glorious future where we're going to be able to talk to people across the world, and we're all going to be interconnected, and it's going to solve so many of our problems. And that strikes a chord with me because I'm a 90s kid. And that was how a lot of people thought about the internet and technology back in the 1990s. It was a very techno optimistic period. But clearly, there have been so many pathologies, so many issues that have come out of uh, the internet since then that we just couldn't, we didn't anticipate and perhaps couldn't anticipate. But I think most of the political discourse is stuck inside that spaceship Earth ride, right? It's still onwards into the future. And if you object, you're a Luddite and you're objecting to progress. And I wonder, you know, how do you crack through that? I mean, how do you just encourage people to say, wait a minute, no, this is actually moving much too fast. It's starting to upend things that we really love. Uh, It's a difficult point to make in conversation, I find. Yeah, that charge is hurled at me constantly, you know, that that you just don't like progress. And, you know, it's, it's a question, it's not a question of pure innovation. And I think this is what we really struggle with, particularly on the congressional level, is that we've been, our politics has, has been sort of constructed around this very neoliberal idea of progress as an end unto itself, you know, and that every, you know, every progression is good. Whereas, you know, every time we've innovated in, in this way, even going back to the years of radio, right? Our self-government has acted to incorporate that innovation into our values and traditions, you know, whatever it is that we value in that moment, as opposed to being reformed in the image of whatever that progress is. And that's something, that's a muscle I think we've lost. And I think it has to come back if we are to actually formulate, not just as citizens, but as sort of a self-government, a coherent response to these changes. We have to come through it with that mindset, which is that, no, no, we decide we decide how this fits into our lives, not the other way around. Yeah, and let's dig a little bit deeper into that because I think for a lot of young people, when they watch the way that Congress talks about big tech, they're really struck by the fact that so many of these uh, Congress people don't even really understand the technology that they are trying to not um, just regulate, but even just ask basic questions about. Like when they bring Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey in for questioning, um, they're talking about why they can't access their Gmails. And it's it's... It's funny, but it's also like scary. To it's not think, a great showing. <laughs> right. I mean, because we, we rely on these people ultimately to make sure that, as you said, these technologies are properly incorporated into our lives, although they have taken a rather hands-off approach more than, than I would prefer so far. But they don't even, they don't even understand the, the basics of it, let alone the intricacies of how our existing communications policy works in regards to the Internet. Yeah, and it's it is troubling. I don't want to you know think point the finger at Congress and say they're the perfect 
people to do this because yeah, you it was what not long ago where you had Orrin Hatch asking Mark Zuckerberg how we made money, right? Like, <laughs> what is a digital ad? And it's like, oh, good, good grief. But you know, and I, and I think that's it's it's worth pointing out. And this has this is what when I talk about big tech issues, that's why it's not just a government effort. It has to be a collective effort. And, you know, not just the self government, but also the people that participate in it, like us, saying, no, no, we do need to look into this more. We do need to understand how it's affecting our kids, what our kids are doing online. And I think you see a lot of, I think, not good analogies between sort of the moral panic around social media, comparing it to like the moral panic around video games. And I just don't think that the two are are the same at all. I mean, just the ubiquity of the internet itself, right, is so much different than what video games were. The idea that at school, you know, schools are pushing the internet onto these kids, right? They're giving them Chromebooks. They're, they're plugging them in, you know, from the minute they get there. You have no idea what your kid is doing online, you know, most of the time even the most active and engaged parents. So there does have to be a hand-in-hand approach here because our Congress is is woefully short, <laughs> I think. And even our regulating agencies that are supposed to have this expertise, you know, I don't think necessarily do. And part of that is by design. You know, in America, we don't chase innovation, right? We sort of let innovation take its place. And then we, then we say, okay, how does this fit? And I think that's the part, that's the juncture we're at right now is we're saying, okay, changes have been wrought, we're not necessarily happy with, so we're catching up you know, to where innovation is. And I think that's going to take some time, unfortunately. I'm curious about the political dynamics of this too, because I think there was a time when uh, government seemed like the most revolutionary entity around, right? Like during under the Wilson administration or the progressive era, for example, it was government that was really trying to bring out, bring about big shifts and changes in our lives. Uh, certainly communism, they wanted to, you know, remake the entire world it, using the, the state. I mean, that, that fit into that as well. Um, but we enter this situation now where it is the, the tech companies that are increasingly playing that role, right? They're the radicals. They're the ones who are trying to, to implement those, those really stark changes. Not to say the government, I mean, the government has all kinds of problems. It does all kinds of things wrong. It's, um, it's very bad in a lot of ways. But, and I, I think this is what is, people are probably reacting to, right? Is that there's a certain type of libertarian who draws a line and says, there's the private sector on this side and the public sector on this side. Everything on this side is bad and to be, scrutinized and everything on this side is is good and to just be allowed to you know barrel forward because it's going to improve our lives ultimately uh, still clinging to that techno optimism and uh, i i just get the sense even from you know still very libertarian individual liberty minded people like myself that that's just not good enough anymore that the kind of shutting off our brains on one side of this line given what these tech companies are doing and how revolutionary they've become that just doesn't cut it anymore yeah it's this idea you know it's permissionless innovation, right? That that is the the end, that is the goal, you know, unto itself. And I think there's been a, a fusion of thinking into policymaking too that says, well, this is just inevitable. You know, what these companies are doing is inevitable because this is the inevitable outgrowth of innovation and, you know, all these things. And it's just not, and it's never been true. And if you look at the history of our government as we've incorporated, you know, tons of innovation, as I, I always go back to like the initial sort of burgeoning of radio in the telecommunications industry. You know, if you remember the Titanic, right, as the Titanic was sinking, you had this new technology that was being fraudulently used. You talk about misinformation. People were sending all kinds of misinformation about, you know, Titanic survivors and everything all over the radio. And that was a big push, you know, tipping point for our government to say, this is a great 
and novel thing we've invented, but it has to be regulated and ruled in some way so that it's a benefit to society and it doesn't, you know, tip the scales toward a negative. And so that's what I mean. It, there isn't, there used to be more direction and will in the legislature to encompass that role. And what we're witnessing now, I think, is a struggle, especially among the right to remember that and to flex that muscle because, you know, they're, they're hung up on sort of these ideological hurdles that say, well, kind of the way you framed it, you know, there's a, there's a, a line, a demarcation line that we cannot cross to say what industry should do and what it doesn't. And on the left, right, you have this very dystopian attempt to like govern speech, right? <laughs> these like bureaus of right, misinformation. Right. And, and that is obviously like totally not in keeping with our values either. So you do have a kind of dumpster fire, I think, in this approach <laughs> as we're trying to prevent, present something coherent that, at, at, you know, at the same time protects innovation, but also incorporates it again into, into the life and society and values that we have. Yeah, I think the right has gotten so hung up on um, the censorship aspect of it that they failed to see kind of the bigger picture in terms of the way that technology affects your life and your children. And there are very few Republican uh, Congress congressmen and senators who actually understand that aspect of it, too, and think that that's important to suss out. One of the things that's really struck me over the past, I, I think, year or two, really, in regards to attempts to regulate is that the calls from um, sort of these right populists to regulate the internet have been matched by the tech companies, but the tech companies are coming in with this, their own idea of how they want their companies regulated. And ultimately it's to their own benefit. So can you talk a little bit about some of those proposals and, and I guess the cynicism um, that's involved in them trying to get ahead of this push for regulation? Yeah. I mean, look, it's a smart play from them, right? There's the old adage in Washington that it's like be at the table or on the menu. And then I think the tech companies have decided, okay, we see what's coming down the pike. So we are going to use our massive influence in Washington to dictate what will happen to us. And the most sort of famous or daily example of this is Facebook and all of the sort of Washington newsletters that go out to policymakers have ads you know, in those in those newsletters that say Facebook supports updated internet regulation, you know, and you see these ads on YouTube. And obviously, right, th this is the a tale as old as time for industry to say, okay, you, we see you want to be involved here. We're we're on board, and we're we want to create this reform in such a way to entrench ourselves and disadvantage our competitors. And I hope our our lawmakers are smart enough to see through this. Although, you know, they're still struggling on what is an algorithm, so we have to take baby steps. But, you know, that is a concerted effort by these companies, which, by the way, are not small. I mean, there's a lot of discussion right now about the anti-tech movement or tech skeptical movement and who's funding it. I just need to point out that last year, in the year 2020, Facebook and Amazon spent more money than the entire defense industrial complex and lobbying Congress. They spent more money than Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon. Um, all these companies. So this is not a small effort. You know, they d dedicate, you know, millions of dollars and hundreds of people to buying the rules that govern them. And so this is a this is a David versus Goliath fight in many ways. Rachel, I want to ask you a question, then I'll have a quick follow up afterwards. Um, first of all, how is the fight going on a lot of these things? You know, Section 230. And what are you looking at, too? I mean, Section 230, uh, I think Tucker Carlson suggested banning children from owning cell phones at one point. That seems a little bit uh, a little bit far fetched or unaccomplishable. That What's that? <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I have a seven month old yeah. son. I would love it if he just couldn't even get into any of this stuff until he was 18. But but how is how is the policy fight generally going, do you think? 
So, you know, it's, I think it's become slightly entrenched. You know, I think on the, on, I sort of alluded to it earlier. On the one hand, you have the left who's like, set up a bureau of misinformation. You see this from the Facebook whistleblower, right? No, Facebook is good. It's just the people on it who are bad. And it's like, no, that's not it. <laughs> you know, and then on the right, you know, I think you have a, a real intellectual struggle, you know, that started around Section 230. I think that, you know, a, a year or two ago was the cause celeb for many people on the right. But I think, you know, the more that they've been observing the behaviors of tech, they're realizing that Section 230, which, you know, if you're not familiar with it, is the section of law that um, says that these companies will not be treated as publishers. Uh, and it also allows them, it immunizes them, you know, from any sort of lawsuits for removing content that is, you know, quote, lewd, lascivious, harassing, and kind of goes on. It is, in my view, been evolved from a very porous a liability shield to a bulletproof one. I think the courts have stretched this into oblivion to the point where it now protects uh, Facebook when it goes into court for having teenagers sex trafficked on its platform. Facebook can say, oh, not our problem, right? And they do so successfully. Um, but I think people on the right are, are more and more waking up to the fact that this is actually, Section 230 is a small component of what is a much larger market concentration issue. And you're starting to see the debate evolve in that way. Um, that, And I've written a lot about this idea that the speech concerns that Republicans are concerned about are actually downstream of market power. You know, that that Google's censorship regime is only as effective as it is because it has 90% market dominance, right? If Google was filtering information for 30% of the country, I wouldn't care <laughs> what they chose to suppress or amplify. But if they're going to do it at the scale they're doing, now that has knock-on effects for self-government, for how people find information, for how they vote. And so it's the scale I think that is the real issue. I agree with all of that. And I guess my follow-up is I, I wonder though whether policy is going to be able to address the full problem, right? Because even if you apply antitrust and break up Facebook, even if you do Section 230, at, at some point somebody's going to create something like the metaverse, right? Or it, like the, the speed of, of innovation of development is going to continue. With antitrust, it could even make it come faster because you have more competition within Silicon Valley itself. And, you know, I mean, you think of some of what could come out of this, right? I mean, uh, white nationalists or or Antifa who could create this their their own kind of world within the metaverse or just you know, we already have a massive porn problem online. Think about what that could be if there's virtual reality if it springs out into real life. It it seems more like a problem of of paradigm and not one that you can kind of tinker around the edges with. And I just wonder, you know, is is the solution bigger and does it ultimately need to come from all of us from a generation that just says, you know what, we're not going to participate in this anymore? No, I think that's exactly right. You know, I uh, there's a lot of people, I think, that tend to treat this debate as binary, right? It's government or nothing or it because it's government, it can't be anything. And I think the comprehensive approach is what was what it's going to take. Like, I am of the mind that, yes, our policymakers and our self-government does have a role here, even going back to your cell phone example even acknowledging, right, as much as we would love to take our cell phones away from kids, they can't engage in the world that way anymore. It is just not a factor of existence that they can go to school and not have a laptop shoved on them or a Chromebook or some kind of mobile device. Acknowledging that reality and putting parameters around it is actually the job of self-government to say, this is appropriate for you to show children or you, you know, this is appropriate for you to not show children and you cannot harvest their data at the same time. You know, all these things are the, are the ground rules for, you know, how we incorporate this technology. And the same with antitrust. You know, Congress hasn't flexed that muscle in a very long time, you know, and I think it's time they do. If they don't want the courts to do it, if they don't want the FTC to do it, 
Congress can write these bills, right, that structurally redefine these companies that say things like Google's ad dominance, which if you if you reviewed recently an unsealed complaint uh, in the multi-state antitrust lawsuit against Google for its ad dominance, basically showed that their digital ad regime is basically as if Google owned the New York Stock Exchange, right? And that is a new uh, development as a business model. It would be appropriate for Congress, in my view, to say, okay, you know, if you're going to engage in this business, you can be the buy side of the ad business, or you can be the sell side, but you can't be both, right? That's an appropriate role for Congress, in my mind, and one which there's plenty of historical precedent for them to use. But to your point, that can only take us so far. I think there has to be a, you know, a broad understanding and awareness among the users, right, about what's really going on here. But I, you know, and Congress can force a lot of that transparency where it doesn't exist to help consumers make that choice. But I do think, and or at least I hope, and one of the reasons I spend a lot of time commentating on these things is that there will be some sort of backlash, you know, at some point. I think, you know, I'm an geriatric millennial, I guess is the term, you know, and <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> right. Like I, I'm probably the last half of, of, of that, of the millennials that grew up without the internet, right. Until I was older. And that's a future that I would like, you know, for, for my kids. And so I think you're, you're going to hopefully see that response, I think a little bit, because, you know, previously we just accepted these things uncritically as, you know, the product and the fruit of innovation. And, and there were never, we never considered the consequences. Well, now the consequences are starting to become very clear. And so I think there, there has to be a hand in hand approach. It's not just going to be the government. It has to be the users as well. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.